do love those, uh, that third and fourth verse. It's so counterintuitive for us, isn't it? To believe that we are so near and so dear to God that more dear and more near we cannot be. Why? Because of union with Christ, which is, in a sense, the subject, uh, or it's not in a sense, it is truly the subject of our passage uh, this this morning. It is about union with Christ and the benefits that we draw from that union. You see, what if we were to go out into the streets and if we were to ask a, a random set of people, what is a Christian, we would probably get a, a wide range of uh, replies. Some people would say that a Christian is someone uh, who has adopted a different lifestyle. They they live differently than before. Some would say that a Christian believes certain things and does certain things. Stopped doing uh, uh, this and started doing that. For many to be a Christian is to make a decision to live a, a, a healthier, more uh, just, uh, more um, quiet, more honest, upright life. Uh, a determination to live a life in service of others or... Uh, or a determination to, um, to live a life for the benefit of society. The problem is, is that in the mind of those people, in the mind of people who reply like this, being a Christian is no different from uh, belonging to a social club or to a charity, to being a volunteer in a charity. Some would say, oh, oh I'll become a Christian uh, tomorrow. I'll, I'll, I'll join this church the day after tomorrow, I'm going to become a Christian. I'll become a member of such and such a church. This is what it means for many to be a Christian. To be a servant of the living God. To be a, a son of the Almighty. And yet, when you come to Scripture, you realize that being a Christian is not less than some of these things. But it's so much more. It's not less than some of these things. Yes, being a Christian is to live a life in service. Yes, being a Christian is to belong to a church, uh, to a body of believers. Yes, being a Christian is to stop doing certain things and start doing others. But that's so uh, simplistic. When you come to Scripture, when you read what it means to be a Christian, you realize that Becoming a Christian is actually something extraordinary. It's not something that, that is in the realm of, of our behavior. It does impact our behavior, as we'll see, but it's something that, that is a miracle. It is truly the greatest miracle of all, to become a Christian. It's the greatest privilege a, a man or a woman can participate in. Not because, in, in a sense... Being Christian, being a Christian is an extraordinary thing. Not because we are in ourselves, uh, in and of ourselves, uh, extraordinary or superior to others. For we are not. But it is my conviction that if we truly saw salvation, being a Christian, as it is, presented to us in scripture, we would be in awe and wonder every time we come across one in our daily lives. If we kept in mind all the time all that a Christian is and all the privilege that a Christian enjoys, we would not cease to be amazed every time we come across one. And the subject of our portion this morning that we are going to go through this morning is precisely that. It's some of those privileges, some of those wonderful uh, blessings that are given to us in Christ. All the blessings we receive, as we've already considered, come to us from the Father. The Fa God the Father is the source of our blessedness, of all that, the, those spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly places. We receive from the Father, but we receive, as Paul goes on to say, in Christ the Son. We are blessed in Him. And Paul highlights three glorious blessings that come from the Father in Christ Jesus 
in this portion from verse 7 to verse 10. Three Ps uh, that I, just to help us in the exposition. Three points of exposition. Firstly, we receive a purchase. Secondly, we receive a pardon. And thirdly, we are made, uh, we are revealed a plan in Christ Jesus. So three points of exposition and then we'll have four, maybe five points of application. I have to be judicious with the time. I have to, to be careful with the time this morning. So as we come to this passage, Ephesians 1, uh, verse 7 through to 10, we see that this, the, the focus of Paul now moves from eternity past. You remember two weeks ago we were considering predestination, election before the foundation of the world. And in a sense, it shifts from the Father uh, to the present time or to the accomplishment of that predestination in time. And it shifts from the Father to the Son. He, he go, he pick, he pick, Paul picks up the election, uh, the purpose, uh, salvation, redemption purposed, and now he dis displays and he tells us how that salvation, how that uh, redemption is accomplished in time. And we see it in history as redemption through the forgiveness of sins. So think of it this way. Before we, we go to our first point, Paul told us, in verses 3 to verse 6 about redemption purposed in eternity past and now today we consider redemption accomplished it is in uh, in the past still it was accomplished 2000 years ago but that's what we are considering this morning firstly we have purchase verse 7 uh, we read there that in Jesus or the Father has redeemed us in the Son, that Jesus is our redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The word to redeem is, a, is an interesting word. It is the purchase. It, is, it means to purchase, to redeem. It means to rescue someone or something, a prisoner of war, a slave, to free. It comes to us from the, from the, the verb uh, to release to untie. It is the first verb that uh, most uh, Greek students learn uh, as they start uh, learning their basics in Greek, uh, especially biblical Greek students, is the verb, verb luo, which means to untie. It's a very ordinary verb. Because it's very ordinary, it doesn't have exceptions. It's a very good verb to learn all the declensions and all the verbal forms with. It is a verb that refers to releasing, untying. And, and it, when it refers to divine action, when it's used in connection to, to God, it, it refers to deliverance as well. Many uh, in, in, in the Psalms, for instance, the word that is later translated as redeem is a word that is used for the deliverance from uh, difficulties, from, from uh, uh, trials and temptations. It is used of God when he delivered, redeemed the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt or the rescue of the, pe uh, of, of the chosen people of, of, of Israel from the captivity in Babylon. In each case, man is redeemed. In each case, when the word redemption is used, man is freed from a situation uh, in which he is incapable of releasing himself. That's the, the, the definition, in a sense, of redemption is, uh, uh, in this case, God redeeming man, freeing man from a situation that he himself is unable to release or free himself from, a debt that he cannot pay, uh, a, a slavery that he cannot uh, get out of. And the, the word redemption, as it is, appears here in our text, uh, as I said, comes from loosening. God loosens the bondage, he unties the bondage. He frees us from the bondage. A prisoner set free, a, a slave being emancipated. That's, that's the sense here. Redemption is nothing more than setting a person, or a, or a thing, but in this case a person, by paying a ransom. 
If, I, if you allow me to use an illustration of this, is, uh, I don't know if you ever used a pawn shop. I, um, I never did, but I've seen those uh, Discovery Channel uh, programs that, that reality shows that, that speak about pawn shops. And basically, if you need money, you go and you, you pawn a watch, for instance, you get the money, and later on, if you want that watch back, if you want to redeem that watch, you need to pay a price. Usually it's the price that you receive plus a fee, plus a, uh, something to, to make the pawnbroker uh, earn more money. And that's, and that's redemption. And that's the, the, what happens with us. We're being bought, brought, uh, we're being redeemed by Christ. When Paul tells us that we are redeemed in Christ through his blood, he is thinking of us as slaves, as prisoners who have been bought and set free by God. It implies, doesn't it, that we are prisoners, that we are unable to do anything for ourselves. In, and, and Paul is very aware, when he says this, he's very aware of his own context. He's speaking out of his own context. In his context, there were slaves. We live in a society where there is at least not slavery uh, in the sense uh, as it once existed. Slavery nowadays might exist, but it's it's illegal and it's much more nuanced. But slavery, as in the, in the, in the ancient times, you, you would become a slave either because you were born to slave parents. So if you're a child of, uh, of a slave mother and a slave father, you're a slave. There's nothing you can do about it. That's who you are. You're born into this family. You are part uh, and you inherit the, the same traits and the same uh, benefits or the same uh, issues that your parents had. Your parents are slaves. You are born into this family. You are a slave. But there was a second way that people could be enslaved in ancient times. You could be enslaved by reason of conquest. You're, you're of a tribe that is conquered by another tribe. You're of a nation that is conquered by another nation. And therefore, you become slave, a slave, uh, a servant, to the conquering nation, to the conquering people. You're defeated in war. Your, your nation, even if you were not there carrying your, your, your sword and fighting that battle, because the people to whom you belonged were defeated in battle, you were defeated in battle. You're now a slave, especially women and children, because men you would usually die in the, in the field of battle, and then the women and the children that belong to that nation, that tribe, are taken into captivity. That's another way. But there is still a third way in which a person would become a slave. That is clear in the, in the language, even in the parables of our Lord Jesus. You took a loan. You destroyed property uh, by accident or on purpose. You, are, you owe money to someone. You become a slave to that person if you're unable to pay. If you're unable to uh, liquidate your debt, you become a slave to that person. That person now belongs to you, not only yourself, but many times your, your family, especially if you're the, the head of the household, the people under you become also slaves to your uh, creditor. If you cannot pay the debt, you sell yourself into slavery. And the, the interesting thing is that these three illustrations are clearly true in our spiritual state. Let's see, number one. You're a slave because you're born into a slave family. We are born slaves. Why? Because of the sin of our father, Adam. Because we are born to a family of sinners. We are born in sin. We are because we are born in a family that is uh, enslaved by sin. There is no way that we are born free. We are born under the condition of our fathers. We're born in the midst of this fallen race. Our parents all the way back to Adam and Eve, our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, that we are all under the penalty of sin. We are all slaves to sin. But we are also slaves by conquest. Sin has overruled in our, uh, has ruled in our lives. Sin has conquered our souls. Sin is the, the slave master uh, that, that tells us what to do. We, there is nothing that we do that is not sin. It is that slave master that is over us. We are slaves by conquest. Sin is that king 
who overpowers us. But we are as well slaves by indebtedness. We are in a debt. Sin makes us to owe God a debt that is unpayable because we've sinned. And because God is infinitely just, this is the consequence, because God is infinitely holy and just, we are therefore subject to the punishment of sin. This is uh, clear. Our sins deserve punishment. The wages of sin is death. The, the, uh, the soul that sins will, will die. Justice and, and the law of God demands our lives. So now you bring into this in Ephesians 1 verse 7, Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood. So what did Christ come to accomplish in this, in this, uh, in this, in this cosmic plan? He has come to bring us redemption. He has come to free us from this slavery that we're in, this threefold slavery that we're in, through his blood. What Christ did, his redemption is through his blood on Calvary's tree. He pays the price. He is our redeemer. He, he brought, brings us redemption because he prayed the price with his own blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. Through his death. He gives his life on the cross that we might be set free from that slavery. He lays down his life in the place of death so that we may have life in him. The price of our redemption was his blood. And, and time and time again, Paul brings this up. It's not just in Ephesians. Galatians 5, uh, chapter 1, that because we were redeemed by his blood, we are now uh, free from the curse of the law. Paul says, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again to the yoke of bondage. So Christ, through his blood, he makes us free so that we would not, or in the exhortation that Paul gives, do not be entangled again to that yoke of bondage. Romans chapter 6, verse 1, a very famous, familiar passage to us. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says, that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And Paul releases us from the power of Satan. Uh, and Paul says that Christ releases us from the power of Satan. Verse uh, 13 of Colossians chapter 1. Christ has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So you see, it's a, uh, this redemption is an all-encompassing redemption. It frees us from the, the, the slavery we are in, both from birth, both because of being conquered and being a part of... Uh, of the kingdom of darkness and both from our indebtedness and releases us from the curse of the law. Christ, as he dies on that cross, he redeems us. Why? Because he's or we are united with, to him. Again, that theme of union with Christ is so necessary. In him, we have redemption. Why? Because as he was dying on that cross, he's dying in our stead because of our union with him. That's the, the extent, and that's why I, I love, uh, I chose this hymn for, for, the, for this service. It's that idea of union, so near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be, for in the person of his son, I am as near as him. Redemption is connected to union. We are accepted, as Paul says, in the beloved so dear, so very near, dear to God that I cannot dearer be. Why? Because I am as dear to God as he is. I am accepted in the beloved. I am loved because Christ is loved. God the Father loves us with the same love that he loves his son, God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are united with him. 
So that's the first point, a purchase. But then we have a second point, a second benefit, a second blessing in this, in this uh, um, accomplishment. We have the pardon of our sins, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. One of the aspects of his redemption is forgiveness. So how do, we, how do I uh, help you to visualize this? Redemption is all-encompassing. And as we'll see in a moment, redemption is even more encompassing than just individual salvation. There is a, a, an unfolding mystery, uh, uh, an unfolding plan that is coming that includes the redemption of all things. But redemption is all-encompassing. It's like union with Christ. Redemption and union with Christ. And one of the blessings of redemption in union with Christ is forgiveness of sins. One of the, or the first fruit of redemption in our lives is forgiveness of sins. More specifically, the way that the, the, Paul words it here is the remission of our transgressions. Liter literally speaking, Paul says here, the remission of our transgressions. What, what, what does it mean to remit, remit something? It means to blot out completely to take away, to, that's the, the even more literal uh, meaning of the word here. It, it means to take away. Christ dies on that cross to redeem us, and the first fruit of that redemption is that our sins are taken away. And that is significant because in redemption, it's more of this all-encompassing uh, work but the specificity of the remission of our sins. So it's not just the, the, the problem that we have by nature and by birth, that we were born in sin, that we were born enslaved by sin, but it's also the, 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 the forgiveness of those sins that are ours truly and properly. Our sins are taken away. The, the record charge, the, 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 the bell... Uh, that needed to be paid in regards to us has been blotted away, has been remitted, has been forgiven, has been taken away. Our trespasses, our sins, the, the word trespass uh, denotes a, a crossing of a boundary, right? You trespassed. God set a boundaries for us. He set places where we should or shouldn't be, uh, where we can or cannot go uh, with, our, with our moral and our actions, and, and we've crossed it. We've trespassed. We crossed the boundaries that God had set before us to obey, and we veered off the path that he called, designed for us to live. And the, the blood of Christ forgives us, remits all those transgressions. He redeems us not only uh, from the original sinfulness, from the, the state that we were born in, but, but he also redeems us um, of our guilt uh, and of, our, uh, of, the, of the consequences of our own individual and daily transgressions. And all of this is based on the atoning sacrifice. It's all through the blood of Christ. So you see, Christ's forgiveness is complete. He died to remove the guilt of our sin. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, as, as John uh, the Baptist said. No, no accusation now can prosper against God's elect because Christ has already torn up the writ uh, of debt that was against us. Colossians 2.14. Look how, how Paul expresses it there. 2.14, he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. In that, on that cross, the, the writ, the handwriting of our, of our debt, of, our, uh, of, our, of the, our sinfulness, is nailed to the cross. He forgives us of our sins. He remits it. He, he forgets it. It's one of those godly attributes that only God can truly forget the way that he forgets. The psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
as far as the east is from the west. And you ask, how far is it? Well, it's from one scarred hand to the other on that cross. That's how far it is. Because that's where he forgave us. And he goes on to say, according to the riches of his grace. So our pardon is not some uh, penny that a, a rich person or a pound that a, 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 a millionaire throws into the, uh, to a, a beggar on the street. That's not how God forgives us. He doesn't just throw a, a, a penny or a, a pound. He forgives us according to the riches of his grace. And you ask, how rich is God in his grace? is infinitely rich. So therefore, your forgiveness is infinitely uh, given. It's, in, it's there. It's in accordance with his vast riches. It's in accordance to, with the abundance of, the, of his goodness, of his grace. So it immerses, it, it washes, it, it submerges us. That's why you can say that it's as far as the east is from the west. Why? Because we are united with Christ. And because we are united with Christ, every time that God looks upon us, he no longer sees our defilement, even the ones present, even the sins we've committed, although we need to confess them and turn from them and repent of them. We, he doesn't see our sins present. He sees the righteousness of Christ because we are clothed in his righteousness alone. So, that's the second uh, blessing of God's redemption through the Son. The purchase, the pardon, and thirdly now, we have the plan. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10. We'll look at the, these three verses in a sense together. Having considered verse uh, 7, uh, we'll now look at these three verses together. Which he has made to abound towards us this riches of his grace he has made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will according to this good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him so I've told you this already, and, and it's important for us to, to have this in mind throughout this section, is that this passage from verse 3 to verse 14 is one long sentence. I suppose that you're reading from a New King James, and you have some paragraphs there. And those paragraphs are helpful, but they can be misleading as well. This whole, sentence, this whole section is one prolonged sentence by Paul. It flows from one to the other, which, which makes it difficult for us to know where he stops and where he begins the next thought, because it's one uh, continuous tra train of thought. It's breathtaking. But that's, here's the, breath, uh, the breathtaking element in, the, in verse 8 through 10. Paul has just spoken about redemption. He has just uh, opened up this, this theme, and now he goes on to say that in verse 8 and 10, that God's redeeming work in Christ is not only applied in the, in, in the individual, in you and me who are his, purchased by his blood, but it, it, it introduces us into this more um, broad and fuller uh, design of redemption. This, this plan to unite all things which are in heaven and on earth in Christ you see that we are purchased, redeemed, we are pardoned, forgiven of our sins, and, and then we are, it is revealed to us that we are a part of this ultimate plan that is being brought into fruition. This ultimate end uh, that God has designed redemption for. I'm sorry to say, your salvation is not the ultimate end of all things. Your salvation is not the ultimate. The world doesn't revolve around you. You're a part of it, of this ultimate end, but you're not the center. That's, this is so, 
such a, a lie uh, of this 21st, uh, 20th century, uh, in 21st century, ultra-individualistic way of thinking. You're not the center. You're a part of it. You're, you're, you're a, a, a part of that plan. But you're not it. But that is great. And, God, and Paul calls it here the mystery. We'll talk more about this, this mystery, as Paul calls it, uh, uh, the mystery of his will. But just so we understand a little bit of what Paul means here, uh, when the Bible speaks, when the New Testament speaks about mystery, it's not talking about something that we need to bring out uh, uh, our, our charts and our, our newspapers and we need to work out something, something that is unsolvable. When the, the Bible speaks of mystery, it's speaking of something that is already revealed, that was hidden in the past. When Paul speaks of mystery, he's speaking of something that was unknown in, in the Old Testament, that was veiled and, 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 and not truly understood. It was a mystery back then. But now, in the fullness of times, because Paul sees himself as living in the fullness of times, but now this mystery is revealed. This gospel mystery that was hidden throughout the centuries, up until the coming of Christ, now is revealed. And what is the... Uh, or look at how Paul expresses it in, in chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. Paul says, uh, 4 to 6, Paul says, um, By which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. What is the mystery? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me. So what is the mystery? Is this unifying, redeeming purpose of God of bringing all things that have been lost in, it, in the Garden of Eden, that have been uh, defaced in, in creation, bringing all things back together and making of the new heavens and the new earth. Part of it is that the Jews uh, or is that the Gentiles are now brought into the body, that the Gentiles uh, are brought into the into the into this um, plan of salvation. The unity between Gentiles and Jews in the same body is a, 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 an aspect of it, but it's not it fully. Let me try and explain this because I think it, it might be a little bit uh, going over some of our heads. In the Garden of Eden, because of Adam's sin, creation was destroyed. Sin entered the world. We became slaves to sin. In the Garden of Eden, uh, the effects of sin go far beyond just the relationship between God and man. It, it affects all of creation, both things in heaven and on earth. Everything has been affected. There is this corruption that is uh, pervasive throughout the whole of creation. And now in the fullness of times, God sends his son to become the second Adam. And where in every place where the first Adam fell and failed, Christ is victorious. Where Adam was tempted and fell and, and, and succumbed to that temptation in the garden, Jesus Christ in the wilderness and throughout his life was tempted, yet without sin. So he becomes this second Adam, this last Adam. And now, in Christ, all things are to be united with him as the head with him as the, the victor, with him as the Lord of all. Paul is telling us that the ultimate purpose of redemption is not you and me. The ultimate purpose of redemption is the Son, is the glorifying of the Son. The ultimate purpose of the redemption is to set forth God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and to exalt him. You see that. It is imperative for us to understand this. In our, we need to understand this in order to have a correct view of, uh, of our place, of our worth, 
of our role in all of this. It's not about us, ultimately. It is about Christ. Look at the words of Paul. Very familiar passage to us. We, I think we all can quote it from memory, or most of us can quote it from memory. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The ultimate glory, the ultimate purpose is that he might be glorified, that he might be exalted, that he might receive honor and power and glory in all things. We have completely lost the plot if we think that the ultimate purpose is ourselves. The ultimate purpose is to glorify ourselves. We might not say it because we're too sophisticated, but we have completely lost the plot if we act that way. God's purpose is to save us. God's purpose is to make us complete, but to make us complete in him. It is bound up with him. He's our head. He's our savior. He's our all in all. That's the point. And that's what Paul brings up here in Ephesians chapter 1. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of, of times, he might gather together in one, that is Christ, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and that which are on earth in him. It's for his glory. And that means for us, brothers and sisters, that we have to have a very different approach to all of this. Because God has given us, that's the point that Paul is making here, God has given us to know the plan. In wisdom, uh, in, in uh, prudence, or some translations I prefer that uh, say, in wisdom and understanding, God has revealed to us his plan. We don't walk as headless chickens, not knowing what God uh, is is trying to accomplish. Oh, I just wish that God would reveal his will to me. He has revealed his will to you. You are saved so that you might bring glory to God, the Son, so that the Son, the Christ, might be honored and glorified in your life. This was another point of application that I would make later, but I'll make it now. If he is to be the Lord of all things, if he is the Lord of all, if the, both things on heaven and things on earth are to be united in him for his honor and glory, therefore, the, the idea that your life has a, a separation between sacred and secular, this, this heresy that there is parts of my life that are uh, consecrated and parts of my life that God doesn't care about, so... I, don't, I live them as I please. As long as I don't commit sin, this part of my life, my work, my family, or my whatever, uh, uh, is, uh, is disconnected from, from, uh, from, uh, from God, is a lie. All of our lives, from, from morning till evening, from, from work to family to, to, uh, to, to us going shopping, to us going, uh, eating or, or drinking, all of it is for the glory of God. Why? Because all things are united in him, both things in heaven and on earth. It is a lie of the devil to think otherwise, to, to believe otherwise. Christ is related to all things, and all things are his. If you're a Christian, there's no such thing as secular in your life. Everything is sacred because you were bought with a price, the price of the blood of his son. When you go out the door, when you go out this door in a, in a few moments and you uh, go to your home, prepare your lunch, or go pick up the kids to bring them to, to Sunday school, all of it, it's not secular, it's not inconsequential, it's not uh, indifferent or insignificant. All of it, if we are seeing things properly, is to be seen through the lens of how is Christ to be honored. Your service, no matter how small, whether you are uh, teaching the children in Sunday school, picking, picking them up, whether you are uh, here in the church, I'm talking, whether you're uh, cleaning the toilets, uh, washing the windows, manning the PA, whatever it is, it is in service to God. It is for his honor and glory. It must be done with that in mind. 
with God, every task is a holy task. Just as holy as, as, the, uh, uh, as being a pastor, just as holy as being a, a deacon, just as holy as, as, uh, as preaching the gospel, telling people about Christ. It, all of it is sacred. That is one of the great truths of the Reformation. When Luther comes into the scene, he comes and he dispels this idea between the, this difference between being a clergy and being a common if you're Christ, there is no common. All of it is extraordinary. So that's, that was supposed to be another point that I was going to make, but live your life in light of that. I'm thinking about that, that psalm. The psalmist, uh, he, Psalm 73, yeah, it, it says that, the psalmist was uh, stumbling almost uh, when he looked at the wicked. And the wicked was, uh, was prospering. There is no pangs in his death. Let's, let's turn there. Psalm 73. This is another point of application for us as we consider our, the plan of Christ in our lives. Psalm 73. So Asaf is the, I was going to say was David. No, Asaf. Look at verse 2 and 3. This is the problem. This is how we feel. Let's be honest. So many times. My feet had almost stumbled. My, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pangs in their deaths. Their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Oh, you look around into this world and you think, what is the point? The wicked are prospering. They, they have money, they have prosperity, they have health, they have all these things. They have, they have access and they have uh, fame and all of that. And you, you almost stumble. And you go on and he goes on, goes on. And then we get to verse uh, verse 17, after the, all of this, the psalmist says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And things changed. Why? Because the psalmist had a different perspective now. He was made to know not just the things of the now that were causing him envy. He was made to know the things of the future. He was made to know this ultimate plan. Yes, it was a mystery to him in, in great part. And, and to us, it, it is much easier, uh, e uh, easily seen because we have the New Testament revelation. But he saw exactly the same thing that I want you to see. Understand that the, there is no reason for you to be afraid of the wicked. There is no reason to, for you to be envious of the wicked. There is no reason for us to, 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 to sulk uh, uh, and, uh, and become desperate in light of, of the plan of God, in light of what God is bringing to, uh, to bear and to, is accomplishing, there is nothing that should cause us to despair because he who begins a good work, he'll complete it. Why do we feel so disrupted? Why do we feel so, uh, so despondent at times? God has revealed to us that he has purpose to put Christ our head over all creation. That we will judge the angels, as Paul says. That, that, that the, the end of the wicked is near and is, and is clear. That those who defy his authority, they will one day have to, to give an account for their defiance. And that they will confess the name of Christ. And they will bend their knees at, at the name of Jesus. They might not do it in this life. But as they are uh, in the presence of the Al Almighty. Before the great judgment seat. They will bear the, uh, bend their knees. They will confess that he is Lord. So why do we, do we feel so, so despondent? Don't we see that? That he, our head is going to be the head of all things. 
and he will bring glory to his name. Is there any reason for us to live in fear of the world? To shy away? Is there any reason for us to, 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 um, to live depressed? Because we or to be better about our circumstances. Do they have anything that we should envy? That's the question. When you look at the wicked, do, do they have anything that ultimately you should envy? Just live in light of this great plan that God has revealed to us and he has made us to be a part of. Not because we are better than others, but because of his grace that has abounded towards us. And let's make that grace known to others. And let us live with that certainty, that unshakable assurance that he who begins the good work of our redemption will complete it. When, when it says here that Christ, that's, that's maybe the, my final point of application. When it says here that Christ uh, is the, the source of our redemption, I just realized that his redemption is complete. When he, he, he didn't die on that cross to afford us a possibility of redemption to which we then have to uh, uh, add our faith and our love and our obedience to uh, Effect it to to make it uh, a reality. No, he in him we have redemption, and on that cross when it says it is finished, it truly was in him. Our redemption is full and complete. We might not have it fully now, as as Paul will in a moment, uh, in a few verses, say we'll look at it next week. We already have at least the guarantee, the, the surety, the, 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 the seal, the, uh, the, the down payment of that salvation, but we don't have it fully, but it doesn't matter because his, his salvation is complete. And let us rest in that, that the one who saved us, he will keep us saved. The one who graced, uh, the grace that saved us first is the grace that will keep us uh, and preserve us. And he'll see us through to the end. Hebrews 10 verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. We are still in the process of being sanctified. But his offering, the offering of Christ has perfected, is perfect by one offering. Why? Why? Because now Christ ever lives to make intercession for us. That's the whole uh, argument of Paul, in, uh, uh, of the author of Hebrews, uh, is that Christ is living to make intercession so he is able to save us to the uttermost, and he will save us to the uttermost. That's the point there. That's what we need to see, that this redemption through the blood is a complete redemption. This forgiveness of our sins is, is full for both sins past, present. And, and though we say it with, with tears and with, with, with no joy, even our sins future. You are forgiven, truly forgiven. The, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. We are assured that the faith and, the, and, the, and the, the redemption of believers, of those purchased by the blood, will not ultimately fail. Satan has been defeated. Do you remember the, with, with Peter? Peter, Jesus says to him, oh, Satan has desire to make you fail. But he, what, does, what does Jesus say? But I prayed for you. And what happened? Peter didn't ultimately fail. He was preserved. And when you are converted, uh, when you turn back, when you've repented, Jesus says, go and strengthen your brethren. That's the, uh, the prayer, the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, that uh, keep them by your own name, those that you have given me. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that it is that the Lordship of Christ, Christ's redemption over us is full. So much so that uh, when Paul is writing to the Romans, he says, what, who, who can bring a charge against God's elect? 
Why? Because it is God that justifies. Who, can, who is it that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, it is him that raised, was raised again. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Who is able to separate us from the love of God. Which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the, that's the security that we have in the redemption of Christ. In his forgiveness. In being a part of this plan that is ultimately not about us. But about glorifying him. But I want to finish. And I'll, I'll take a minute or two just to address those who, who are not saved. Who are yet in their sins. And I'll turn to, to Ephesians again. We'll, we'll move just slightly further from where we've been to verse 13. Ephesians chapter 1, I believe it's verse 13. Here's the point. As Paul is speaking about this great glorious gospel, he says, in him you also trusted. In him you also had faith. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. My question is, have you heard the gospel of salvation? You perhaps have heard it time and time again. Perhaps you have heard this gospel time and time again. You probably can recite it back to me. For years you've been listening to it. For years you've been hearing about Christ's uh, atoning death. About his blood shed on the cross for sins. You have heard it. But do you trust it? In him you also trusted. You also had faith. Having believed. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You also need to trust, not just hearing, it's not just head knowledge, but it's a, 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 a knowledge that comes with wisdom and prudence. It's a knowledge that comes with wisdom and understanding that enables us to live life in, in the fullest, to the praise of the glory of our, of our Savior. Why are you still in bondage? There is redemption. There is forgiveness of sins. There is grace that is, that is uh, infinite. doesn't matter what kind of sins you've committed. Whether they be sins that are so uh, outrageous that you don't even tell anyone. Whether they are sins that are uh, of a, a lesser outrageous uh, nature. You need forgiveness. And forgiveness is offered to you. If today you heard the voice of God. Do not harden your hearts. Come to the Redeemer. Don't let your heart be hardened more and more. May God grant you the grace 